this week on the Backtable podcast. And ultimately, you know, I think we may see some situations where, where groups reform under after things have, have folded. But, you know, with non-competes, it's all very complicated now. But things are, are confusing because we have a situation where because of non-competes, you oftentimes can't have a job in the same city. But with, with Telly now, you know, you only need a skeleton crew on the ground to, to staff the physical bases, you know. And if the ACR gets its way and we have things like mid-levels can cover contrast, we can do remote contrast coverage, stuff like that. We may really, really rapidly move into a world where most radiology is practiced remotely and kind of we're on site for procedures and whatnot. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. One of the biggest challenges clinicians face is not related to devices or techniques. It's the workflow. For conditions like aortic emergency, PE, and stroke, outcomes are impacted because it takes too long for treatment decisions to be made and for patients to receive therapy. Viz AI leverages artificial intelligence to coordinate care and improve workflow and is trusted in over 1,000 hospitals across the U.S. and in Europe. The platform uses AI to detect disease, provide access to high-fidelity imaging and patient information, and allows you to communicate securely through the HIPAA-compliant communication tool conveniently on your phone, desktop, or within the radiology workstation. No more asking the ED to send you a grainy picture or making countless phone calls to activate your teams. Visit viz.ai to learn more. And now back to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Ali Behetti, joined today with our host, Dr. Mike Barraza, coming to you from Tacoma, Washington. Well, I guess I can't really say that because you're not coming from Tacoma, Washington, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. But there we I mean, go. sort of, okay. you know, told Cross you I was from today. Seattle originally. So it's yes. like coming from you with a few stops in between. <laughs> And our, our guest today is Dr. Ben White, a diagnostic radiologist based in Dallas. He's also a writer and a blogger. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you all for having me. Before we get started, um, could you tell us a little bit more about your practice? Yeah, so I'm a diagnostic neuroradiologist at uh, American Radiology Associates. We're a 100% independent physician-owned private practice in Dallas. We're also a bit of a kind of a hybrid privademic model where we do have a, a longstanding kind of generational contract with the uh, the local university hospital here at Baylor University Medical Center. And so we do have a radiology residency, about seven people per class. So it's a decent oh, size radiology residency of which I'm the associate PD. So it's a nice, for me personally, it's a great mix because I didn't want to kind of have the job where I sat in a center by myself every day. That would have been a little bit lonely for me personally. So it's a great gig where we have a teaching program that's really kind of teaching and, and education focused, a little bit less research stuff. And so I could be valued and enjoy working with trainees and medical students and do things that I'm interested in without necessarily the rigid hierarchy and bureaucracy of a, of a full, big, classic academic medical center kind of practice. So for me, it's been perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. So does everybody in the practice do you know some of the teaching side or is it really just the people that are stationed at Baylor? So not anymore. I think, you know, back around 10 years ago, most of the group was really centered at the hospital, you know, and then obviously the explosion of patient imaging over the past decade has resulted in every group, including ours, really growing a lot. And so now we kind of have more of a teaching arm and a kind of more outside arm. So basically, if someone joins the practice, we kind of figure out what they're interested in, what our needs are. And we kind of put them where they want to go, essentially, right? So some people do a lot of teaching. Some folks do yeah, very little teaching, like well, maybe once a month. And some folks basically are only at the hospital for call. It kind of depends sure. on the person and, and what the needs are, what division you're in and whatnot. I'm there a fair bit because obviously I like it there. <laughs> I like working with the residents. Um, but everyone's not like me necessarily. So it does have, um, we do have kind of a, a big mix. And it's um, it's an interesting process, right? Because when you're an independent group, uh, unlike a hospital employee group, you choose how you staff it. So if we think we're understaffed at the hospital, we just put more bodies there, right? We're not necessarily beholden to a third party for how we want to get the work done. We just know that our priorities are teaching, our priorities are high quality care, and we staff appropriately for that. And that's kind of our prerogative, right? And that's one of the benefits of this model is that we can say, something's not working, we just fix it and just address it as opposed to having to go to some kind of committee or hiring thing and all that kind of extra red tape of that's so common in, in bigger groups. So that, that's been, I think, very helpful, making sure that we can kind of provide good care to the patients while also making sure that we're training our, our residents to the best of our ability. Ben, was this your first job out of training? Yeah. So I finished fellowship in 2018 
And my wife is a psychiatrist and she was already attending when I was uh, finishing up training. So we were not going to leave town at all. So we were in Dallas. And so I was looking for jobs. So basically between staying, you know, full classic academics where I was a resident, I'm at UT, private practice at a other group in town that would have been, you know, more traditional, typical private practice. And then this, and this is what I wanted because it was like the best of both worlds for me. I was like, I wanted to do the teaching, but I didn't want to say, again, deal with some of that that hierarchy kind of stuff. And um, but I didn't really want to necessarily have a, a job where I just sat in a center, which is very common in, in a big metro, right? Lots of different centers to cover, you need butts and shares. And that did not really appeal to me super much. So I remember when I was looking for a job, they actually weren't hiring this group. And I was, I was kind of desperate to have this job. <laughs> and I remember I uh, was talking to my PD. And he's like, oh, you haven't heard back from them yet? Let me, let me text my, my buddy Umesh, who was the PD at the residency at Bumsey. Long story short, text messages go. I get an interview. They kind of opened up a spot for me to take the job. I took it. Been here ever since. So it's been been over four years now. I've been a partner for a year, so it's it's been great. And I was like, I remember when I took the job, when I took the interview, that I actually had other offers that were like pending, and they had like a deadline. Like you have to respond to the job offer. You know, you can't wait forever. And I remember I got the interview email, and I literally did like a Street Fighter Dragon Punch of success. I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, sorry guys, everyone has to wait. Because <laughs> uh, this was like clearly the one I wanted, and totally. then, uh, so it worked out just fine. Uh, sounds like a really good fit for you. That's neat. So when did you start your blog? Were you in training, or were you already practicing? So the blog is actually pretty old now. So I started it in 2009 when I was a medical oh, student, wow. like a first oh. year medical student. So this is like infinitely long ago in internet years, right? It predates everything you like <laughs> on the internet or, or hate. Did, did you start it on MySpace then. or something? Oh, or? you beat me to that. I was going to ask that same question. <laughs> 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 you know, so what happened was as I used to do like a lot of, you know, writing and creative stuff in college, right? College is fun. You have time, you have energy, you're young. And I got to medical school and I was just taking, you know, the, the litany, like the barrage of tests for tests for tests. And I was like, is this my life? <laughs> is my life now just taking multiple choice tests? Yeah. It's just very unfulfilling. I, and I felt like I needed to do something different with my free time, get some balance in my life. And so what ended up happening was I actually made a New Year's resolution, like a New Year, which I'd never done before. I was like, I'm going to write every day. And so I started basically doing, actually at the time, it was more like fiction, creative writing kind of stuff. So I was doing uh, Twitter fiction stories of like, tweet like little creative writing things and i had the blog but of course you know over time you know if you're a medical student or a doctor or whatever and you're writing kind of an eponymous website right you're kind of just blogging like old school classic blogging not like for a business venture per se or super niche down to a, a single topic but just like writing you, you write about what you know about and so for me it was like it ended up becoming more about medical school as a you know and then it became more about residency and then radiology and radiology business and decision making and everything that comes along with the things that I'm exploring in my life that I'm learning about and trying to share with other people. Because back in 2009, like the world was very different, right? Like if you Googled like how to study for a shelf exam or how to approach a rotation, you would get like forum posts. It would like be like anonymous uh, forum remember posts. that one uh, student doctor net? Does that one still exist? Yes. That's all it was. Yes. It was all just that. And it was, and everything was anonymous. And there were all these gunners who'd be like, you should do this thing and <laughs> write these thousands of questions and read these books. And you'd be like, that is not practical. That is not. Some of it was terrible. It was terrible advice. And I was like. Some of it was time, so bad that like I think that people put it on there to, to cut people down. To the, gunner, the real gunners out there. They're like, Haha, take that. Right. Mental, <laughs> mental games here. It was all karate. <laughs> but so, yeah, it was like at the time there was almost nothing from like real people doing real advice. And so when I started writing things like here's how I would study for step one. Here's how I would approach this clerkship. You know, whether or not my advice was good or bad, who's to say? But it was uncommon to have a real person with a real name say, this is what I think. And so over time, I was kind of providing a, like, a cogent, cohesive approach to medical school, residency applications, the match, whatever. And that kind of had some value to some people. And so the site grew because of that. And then, of course, the topics have changed because I've grown up, basically. So it really was all organic growth that, that got you somewhere. Super organic. That's, that's amazing. That's kind of unheard of nowadays. Yeah, now it'd be all social media mm -hmm. and influencer stuff, but <laughs> back then it was very different. Well, sir, are you still writing every day? I mean, because you're looking back, I mean, you have taken on writing a blog at, at presumably the busiest times of your life, you know, medical school residency and is, you know, a new member of a, of a private demics. I mean, presumably very busy practice. I'm kind of curious how you manage kind of juggling all these different things. 
So things slowed down, to be honest with you, right? So, you know, when I was a, you know, basic science person, right, you're on the computer all the time anyway. It's pretty easy to find time to write when you're like studying on the QBanks and whatnot, as opposed to now that I've got, you know, two young kids and a full-time job and whatnot. But yeah, you know, I think what ended up happening was that I kind of found different ways to fold writing into my life to make it fit and kind of, again, mostly because I enjoyed it and because I wanted to have that balance in my life. So one of the things I actually did, my, my book about student loans, which was my second book, I actually wrote most of that while walking. On my phone, I would dictate into Siri. And so we had this residency where we had um, a parking lot in one spot and the reading room like a quarter mile, half mile away. And we would have to go back across this big sky bridge another quarter mile to get to lecture and then go back to the reading room. And so every day I was like walking for like 40 minutes in the hospital, just getting back and flourish. And so I started dictating fragments and sentences and things and ideas I had on my phone. And then I would organize them and collate them. And so my whole first draft of this book was all dictated. That's amazing. Into Siri on my phone. And then of course I had to, yeah. you know, change and edit it and flesh out ideas and do the math and the examples. I mean, obviously probably half the work wasn't done yet, but like the core part and a lot of the, the, the most clever phrases I used were like, I'd be walking like, ooh, I want to put that down and I just dictate it. I'm a radiologist, right? Like before totally. that, I couldn't do that. But once you learn how to dictate, it changes everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so how does it compare to PowerScribe? Does it get a lot of weird pickups in there? So it doesn't work that well. And the problem is it doesn't like, you know, not normal words, right? And so if you start using proper names and acronyms, it doesn't pick it up. And the problem was I was actually dictating into this app called Workflowy. I just basically was using the regular Apple keyboard, you know, Siri. And so it's, and the workflow is great because it's basically this endless outline app where you can drag and drop your bullet points wherever you want them. So it's great for kind of organizing and nesting different ideas and whatnot. So the problem is if I dictate and it comes up with word salad and it's not really English, it doesn't have an audio file saved there for me to be like, what was I actually saying there? So sometimes I would write and you'd be like, you, you would, uh, look at what you said and you're like, I don't know what I could have possibly said Absolutely. to make that make those words. <laughs> like I have no no idea what that could have possibly been. Okay, not as good as PowerScribe. Duly noted. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but better than PowerScribe one. Yes. I got interested in your blog, I think, because I saw it on Twitter. Um, and you were writing a lot about private equity. Um, and that's kind of why I wanted you to come on the show today, because I think a lot of our listeners Maybe they're either trainees or new attendings, um, or they're somewhere in this process, and they haven't gotten a lot of exposure from their mentors about private equity, um, and they don't really have the tools to learn about it. So it's okay with you. I'd love it if you could kind of give us a brief introduction um, into first how you got interested in, in learning about private equity, um, and then kind of what people looking for jobs need to know. Yeah. So, you know, when it comes to private equity, the reason why I became interested in it was largely because it was an issue kind of plaguing both just the general radiology workforce, which, of which I'm, I'm a part, and also for my residents and the trainees that read the site, it was just one of those issues that comes up is, you know, what's a good job look like? Where is radiology going? How is it changing over time? How do I evaluate jobs? And I think when PE became kind of a huge part and started taking over large parts of the country, you kind of had to be forced to ask yourself, okay, what does that actually mean in real life for evaluating real life jobs and making decisions? And so that's how I got interested in it as, you know, kind of just a person who was not just interested in radiology on the whole, but also, you know, how to help people, give people the resources and the framework to evaluate their opportunities when they're making choices about their job. And so, you know, the, the bottom line with PE is that it's just a funding model, right? It's, any, it's like a corporate practice, but the difference is that the, the owners of it are a private equity company. Which essentially means that they are they're taking money they're invested by by private citizens or kind of pension funds and, and people, large investors, institutional investors, and taking that and then buying up stuff, typically with lots of debt. So take on a lot of debt. So it used to be called leverage buyouts because they would take a ton of debt, take out a huge loan, and then buy up something and hopefully get enough value out of that. They can then pay off the old debt and kind of fold it up, roll it up and sell it to somebody else for more money later down the line. Typically like, you know, five, 10 years later, it's usually not very long term. Got it. And so, you know, you, you've probably heard about things like Sears and Toys R Us going bankrupt. And that's because those companies were owned by PE firms. They got bought out. They got kind of stripped for parts. They would break the company up into small different pieces, take the things that were valuable, shovel them off, and then kind of let the part that was less valuable go bankrupt and then just uh, sell it off for pennies on the dollar, basically, right? So there was a, a kind of a, 
assorted history of retail PE stuff, but the healthcare stuff is newer. And so obviously, you know, we have companies like Rad Partners now that are employ, you know, one fourth the radiology workforce wow, currently is it that in high? the country. So oh, it's a it's a huge, huge part of you know, radiology work yeah. right now, and certainly a big part of things like dermatology, uh, anesthesia, ER work, a lot of relatively lucrative fields that, especially the ones that benefited from surprise billing of all things, um, you know, those were all really ripe for, for takeovers because, you know, obviously if you're an investor, the places where people are making a lot of money or people, places where people can upcharge by doing extra procedures like dermatology, or the places where you think you can create kind of a hegemonic control over a field and then depress salaries, are places that are ripe for investment. Because again, these are business people. They're not here to provide healthcare. Ultimately, that's not the goal of the firm. The goal of the firm is make profit. So what makes the sale of a of your group to a private equity group palatable for some partners? So the, the biggest reason groups sell, well, the, the biggest benefit of a sale is is money, right? So everyone's, everyone's heard of the idea of a big buyout. And the buyout kind of depends on the, on the circumstances of the group. But the way people value radiology practices and the way the bios are calculated is kind of interesting in that, you know, a group, again, a business like Toys R Us and, and Sears, they have assets, they have revenues. It's a little bit different than um, medical practice. You know, when you own a, a medical practice in radiology, for example, you typically don't have corporate profits because if you did, you get taxed on them. So every year you have all your payroll stuff, you pay your partners and your employees, you pay for call, 401k matching, all that kind of stuff. And whatever's left over of that is the kind of the bonus typically. If you have a quarterly bonus, that's like the bonus you get every quarter is okay. that kind of money. Mm-hmm. And so they cannot value a company the way that most people are value companies that are like doing retail kind of stuff. What they do is you capitalize a fraction of your revenues and you get a multiple of that as a lump sum. So to give you an example, let's say your group makes $500,000 a year as a partner. So you will capitalize, let's say, $100,000 of that. So going forward, you'll make $400,000 instead of $500,000 for the same amount of work. So you're going to get paid less, same amount of work, but now you're going to get a multiple of that 100K as a buyout. And the buyout um, multiples are oftentimes things like, you know, 8, 10, maybe up to 12X. So if you have a 10X multiple, that means you got paid a million bucks. So you make less money going forward, but you get some money up front, which is obviously very helpful if you're going to retire soon. Well, great. You don't care about your long-term 20, 30-year revenues. You care about your, your current revenues. And when you get the buyout too, it's going to be a combination of, of cash and stocks. So let's say, of that million dollars, ninety percent is cash, ten percent is stock. So you get nine hundred grand in cash, and that hundred grand is actually valued in stock. And let's say you know, ten bucks a share, ten thousand shares, that kind of thing. And that and that shares are not like cash, right? You can't just sell them when you invest in five years. You have to hold on to them until there's a liquidity event where that company is sold in some way. And so they may be worth more than that or less than that. So obviously, if, you, right. if you're selling your practice, the people who are buying it are going to tell you. That stock price is going to go up. You're going to make more money. You're getting in on the ground floor. It's going to appreciate in value. This is this is not just money. It's better than money. It's an investment in the future, right? It's that kind of stuff, right? So there's a whole component of that salesmanship that goes into it. Obviously, you know, for, I think for most people who who actually do the the sales here, um, I think most radiologists did not really just like account the stock as being the most important thing in the world. I think most of them wanted the cash, and the stock was just like kind of you know, hopefully it works out. But if it doesn't, so be it. And there are other things too that they would put in the marketing stuff, right? So when when a group yeah. comes to try to you know get potentially bought, right? Typically, either people are approaching them, or they may decide to shop themselves around, right? They'll go and say, "Hey, we're looking for contenders here. Everyone, make your pitch, right?" And they're going to have things that they're going to bring to the table, or at least offer you on paper that are going to make your practice better, right? So, hey, we are a big national organization. We can really fix your overhead problem, right? We're going to have all the back office staff. We're going to get rid of redundancies. We're going to find synergies and efficiencies. Magical stuff will happen. So even though we're taking a fraction of your revenues, you're going to make some of that back because we're going to help you out. We're going to make your billing better and more efficient. You're going to have a less you know, billing collection problem. We'll help you with your bad debt. We'll help you negotiate your contracts. We're big and, and fierce and people will respect us. And we're going to get you better rates from your, from your healthcare contracts. You know, all that kind of stuff. We have AI stuff. We have an IT platform. Like We're going to make all this stuff better. And if you're a small practice, like you know, an eight-person group, that may actually be frankly true, right? Like most groups that are very small don't have the money to put into that kind of infrastructure. But it's bullshit. I mean, a lot of it's bullshit. But you know, if you're a big practice, you like you know, the ones in Austin. Oh, I'm doing I it. I think he can. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if you're a big practice like the ones in Phoenix or Austin, some of these bigger groups that sold, you know, they had the back office staff, they had all the IT stuff already. Chances are, in a situation like that, they probably didn't get a lot of actual kind of 
operational support to make it worthwhile. In those cases, it's probably mostly the buyout. But so there's a downside to that, right? So that's why you sell your practice is because you either want the money, you want the help because let's say Medicare reimbursement's falling and MIPS measurements, you know, the quality measurements, they cost money to actually try to get. And if you're a small group, it's going to cost you more money to try to finagle yourself to make Medicare happy than you're going to make from Medicare in the quality payment increases. And so I can appreciate why if you're a small group, you actually can get some some value add to being part of a bigger organization. Totally true. Can't argue with that. But there's some there's some also real downsides to being you know, some umbrellas. And, and one of the ones is that people don't want to work for P companies in general without kind of extra incentives because it is, you know, independent practice is a, a big thing in reality. There's a long history of independent Definitely. practice. And so to to lose that is a big deal. And ultimately, whenever you put a third party into that relationship between a doctor and a patient, things get kind of muddy, they get kind of complicated, and it, things tend to get worse. And there's a lot of evidence for that in other fields, especially that, you know, people order more things, and they do a less good job, and the patients are less well cared for, and there's incentives to read more and push more. And so ultimately, you know, while independent practice can be awful, right, you can have bad doctor owners who are doing a terrible work. Ultimately, that is unfortunate. But be adding a third party in there is not going to make that part better. <laughs> All it's going to do is potentially complement and muddle the wa- muddy the waters for people that are trying to do their best. Um, and so a lot of groups have really struggled after the sale for a variety of reasons, but it's um, it has not made things in radiology workforce very, very clean in the past few years, for sure. Yeah, I should have been clear. Uh, I have, I'm pretty biased. You know, my, The group I joined after training, um, which was a really high quality practice and a you know, place with high quality of life. And uh, they sold like maybe two months before I joined the practice. And the practice really just fell apart in the ensuing years. And, and, and the argument that was made to me was, oh, you know, it's not just the buyout. You know, we're, we're getting, you know, all this IT infrastructure. We're going to have help. They told me, you know, we're going to really help you, you know, kind of market for what you do as an interventional radiologist. And then there was also the perceived incentive. They told us that, you know, any practice that you are able to kind of bring under your umbrella, you're going to get, uh, you know, you're going to get a share of their revenue. And ultimately, it really was all just the buyout. None of the other stuff came to fruition. Uh, oh, and, it was like an MLM. Like if you get another practice yes. to so join there's us. A, like, there's a Ponzi component. There's a Ponzi component. And oh, it's oh. very classic because yeah, what they'll do is they'll say, if you sell your practice and you're willing to go, you know, get in the plane fly to another group and give them the sales pitch, right? So it's not just corporate guys, right? It's doctors telling you the grass here is like crystal green. It's like the, <laughs> the most vibrant emerald you could ever imagine. <laughs> if you do that and that group sells, um, you'll get stock, basically. And so you are incentivized to paint a picture. And I don't think it's very much disclosed to people who are you know, getting the pitch that, by the way, people pitching you aren't just being paid. Like they're being paid to really absolutely do that and so you create this thing where you have groups used to be independent but then the leadership of that group kind of kind of falls under the umbrella now of the the corporate entity and it's like well are you on my side or are you on their side and then I mean, mm-hmm. and for any healthy group like like mike's group you can't survive that kind of cultural schism right you have legacy partners who are holding on for five years to get their you know vester stock and finish up you have associates who are getting shafted they're just you know full-on can take advantage of. And of course, it makes things unstable. And so what, what happened in my groups and what happened in a lot of groups is that, you know, that sale happens. The associates who are early on leave immediately. A bunch of them will just quit. Yes. Say, you know, screw this. Especially if you don't get any kind of incentive to stay. So you're going to leave. And suddenly now that group that was, you know, probably really pushing its numbers up high RVU-wise, try to be ripe for a sale and look mm-hmm. good, look desirable. Now all that work has to get done by fewer people. Mm-hmm. And if you can't recruit because now you're understaffed and you're a PE firm and no one wants to join your practice, well, then now you're understaffed. So now the people who are the kind of middle associates who maybe stayed on, maybe yeah. they're the new partners who become partner, but they become partner in the new paradigm where they get less good stock and they don't make as much money. They start to quit too. So like, they're like, this is not worth it. I'm working my butt off and I'm not making that much money. And they know that it's not going to get better, right? Because if it's bad now, before all the partners who are legacy partners who can leave, can leave yet, what's going to happen when they have five years under their belt and they can quit? It's going to be a complete disaster. And so then the, all the senior associates, partners start to quit. You have the full death spiral. And that's happening in groups you know, from coast to coast where you know, before even the five years is up, the groups are already imploding because they cannot staff. And the problem is to me, as someone who's not in PE and not in independent practice, is that 
this death spiral does not only affect those groups. I think a lot of people out there who would say, oh, great, you know, we'll starve those companies, marketplace of choice. These groups will just fail and we'll go back to normal again. The problem is that's not what's happening. What's happening is it's really no. making the whole reality workforce marketplace totally bonkers. Like half of why it's so hot right now is because of all of this. And so it's destabilizing otherwise healthy independent groups. Interesting. You think about it, it's like, mm. imagine, imagine you're a PE firm, right? And you mm. need a breast imager. And you say, okay, my contract is like, you know, here I am, my group's okay, but I, I, I'm, I'm tapped out of breast. Like there's no one here, they all quit. You're gonna be willing to put some serious money behind that offer to get, some, get a warm body in that oh, seat. Yeah. You don't care if they're good or not, you just need somebody, right? So now there are offers for let's say four day a week, no general call, you know, 500 plus whatever kind of tele only tele memo what I mean tele memo the idea of doing <laughs> breast imager but never doing a biopsy i mean these things did not exist a few years ago right but they all exist now and so what happens is you have these offers that are enticing to young graduates to you know have more associate money nice. and yeah long term probably not a great job right but short term mm. i mean you can't argue with the short term results like those jobs have numbers that are hard to meet so what happens is you have more of these jobs now and people start taking them. So then good groups can't hire because now the RP groups and groups like that are, are able to take those jobs and they're offering things that you can't match very easily because you're a normal independent practice without debt funding. You have to fund your jobs with operations. You can't just take on more debt to pay higher salaries artificially inflated, right? You have all that problem. And so then everyone's desperate, right? And so you have people now offering jobs that have completely changed what they used to be. When I was out in practice four years ago, right? It was seven on seven off for nighttime work. Now seven on 14 off. Now I've seen jobs for seven on 14 off for swing shift work. Like we have people who are, you know, want to have full-time teleradiology, so specialty, all these things did not exist a few years ago. And so it's like, if you're going to quit a job now, used to be you had to go move somewhere, but now you can stay where you are and go take some tele job somewhere else. You don't have to leave your house. Your kids don't change school, all that stuff. And so as a result, now you have people competing on a nationwide scale for tele jobs where people are trying to compete, let's say in a busy metro like Dallas or you know Phoenix or yeah. New York, whatever, mm -hmm. with reimbursement from the Midwest, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so the bottom line is that all this has become just a big hot mess where because of the kind of funny money of private equity and because of just the, the need to, to fill butts and seats because we have a true radiology shortage, right? We do have a, a real shortage. Because of all that combined, people are putting out crazy offers. A lot of groups just can't hire. A lot of hospitals can't get radiologists to do the work for them. It's just a very complicated and kind of crazy time where even good, healthy groups can't recruit because you don't have to be in a metro uh, to work there anymore, right? You don't have to be, uh, no. sorry, you don't have to be living where you work anymore. So if you want to be in Dallas where I am, you don't have to work for my group, right? You can work for some other group and just live here. And that has changed the game like fundamentally in a really meaningful way. It's made tons of groups super hard to hire. And so if you're in one of those groups now, even the partners now are saying, well, hey, wait a minute, these associates over here are making as much as I'm making and they don't take call. And, they don't. and so like the whole marketplace is just nuts. And it all starts with the combination of these PE buyouts, the impending retirement craze of those buyouts vesting, and the fact that we truly do have a real shortage of radiologists with no, with no help coming, right? Because we do have uh, a growth in imaging volume that is far outpacing the radiologist supply. Sure. Man, that is incredible how much of that exact story happened in my original group. Um, I mean, I, I'm so grateful to have your blog now as a resource and some of the other things that you've put out, you know, through ACR. I wish I had had this as a trainee. You know, when, when I got the news that my group was, was selling, I was in the end of my fellowship in Philadelphia and, uh, and I'd never even, I'd never even heard of the company that was buying it. I didn't know that was a thing. And so, you know, I'm going around asking attendings, you know, academic attendings, like, what does this mean? <laughs> what do I do? Uh, and like, that beats me, man. I've never heard of this either. So, you know, the group had, had hired maybe like 10 of us to start, uh, people that I had trained with to start in the city. I, I did residency in a different city that I did fellowship and presumably to kind of boost their numbers before the sale. They were kind of trying to get, you know, fat before the sale. We, of course, didn't know that. We're naive. This was, I don't know, five, six years ago. And then as you said, as you said, a lot of them left, you know, immediately like, no, nah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit for this. And so they left, went to other jobs. I took it as an opportunity. You know, I was like, look, I've already, you know, I've got a house in the place we're moving back. So I just told the company, like, I, you know, the original salary that I was offered under a partnership track was not, you know, 
much lower than what the partners are making. Obviously, what I told him was like, if I'm going to join this private equity owned company, I'm not working for that anymore. And so you're going to have to do better. And so I was able to negotiate a better starting salary with that. But then I got there and, and things really, you know, all the things that were promised by the company were just, you know, they're nothing. No, nothing ever came at it. You know, any of the, the things that were suggested is, is reasons to go with this company, which is fine. It didn't affect my day to day. Where it really started to become an issue was uh, when they couldn't keep people. And so, you know, you're talking about like the mid-level partners, like including me, you know, they made me a quote unquote partner after about a year in, in order to try to keep us there. They were losing numbers pretty rapidly. Most of the young people quit and ultimately all of them did. And, and where we really started to see an issue was, was recruiting. Nobody wanted to come to that job anymore. And so then, as you said, you know, they started having to offer um, much higher than normal starting salaries to people to get them to come there. And what it became good for was for people who wanted a short stop, you know, people wanted to work there for two, three years in a great city because your salaries are essentially capped, at least in that job, you know. It was a pretty decent starting salary, but it, it really wasn't going to change much. And I still think they were reasonably competitive, but uh, the whole quote unquote vibe there was was really bad. And in, in the last few years, you know, even the the original partners who got paid have started to break off and go do their own thing. And and what was originally one of the arguably better practices in the Southeast is now a shell of what it was. And and really very few of the original people are there, or at least very few want to be. So I'm very biased, and I think that there are probably many practices where you know they've had a much uh, rosier turn of events. But in mine, it, it was it was not. I, I wish I had had access to your blog or you know that information at that time. Not, I don't know what I would have done differently, but I've certainly <laughs> learned a lot about it. That's a very common story, and I think you know I can't fault any any young rad for taking what is a good job on paper to a certain extent because they're making the short term play, right? I think. Yeah. With especially the way people talk about radiology, right? AI, mid levels, yada yada, or commodities, all that kind of doom and gloom is very common in radiology, whether or not it's valid or not. And so, if you're a young person, you're like, I don't know what the future holds. You know, is it worth putting in the effort to become a partner in a in a stable practice for the potential long term gain of a higher salary and more autonomy? Or should I just, you know, devil you know, I know it's not ideal, but it'll be fine for now. If it sucks, I'll leave. I'll get paid well, and I won't have a suppressed salary, quote unquote. Uh, so I get what people do that. The only problem with all people, everyone doing that is obviously if you do that, you're kind of hastening the demise of independent radiology. And <laughs> one of the problems is that if we're all employed, it's what my, my president always says, if we're all employed, then we lose our leverage to negotiate, right? So if everyone is, is employed by a hospital or an academic practice or a PE firm, then there aren't going to be those high salaries offered anymore because no one's competing for them anymore because they can all go down. So independent radiology, people who own their own practices, that's what is like the bulwark against being taken advantage of, right? That's where the negotiation, uh, negotiation leverage comes for as an individual doctor. It's because we set our own salaries. We, we do our own work. We don't just take what we produce and get a fraction of that like you do when you're employed. And so without that, then that kind of goes away. So if everyone takes these jobs or everyone decides, I would rather be employee, forget about it. The future is, is grim or unknown or uncertain. And the healthy groups can't hire either. And they start to implode or they sell. They say, we give up. We can't make it by ourselves. We need, we need the help. We need the, the extra debt. We need the, the bulwark of the big organization. Um, and so that's what ends up happening. The other thing that ends up happening is that because these groups are unstable, uh, a lot of patients are going without care right now. And that's the, probably the saddest part, right? Is that you know, if you're a small rural hospital right now, it is really hard to find radiologists. Even, even tele, it's hard. Wow. Everyone is, is super yeah. saturated. And so... You've heard of, you know, a lot of nonprofit hospitals like making billions of dollars, and that's true. A lot of hospitals are really struggling. And so we're at the point now where I believe the shortage is going to result in a lot of hospitals and places trying to, having to kind of up their compensation, offer more stipends, offer more help for call in order to maintain their contracts because their groups need help to be able to staff, to compete with these kind of artificially inflated salaries and whatnot. And so some hospitals can't afford that. And so I'm not sure what's going to happen to some of these small rural hospitals that are not going to be able to pay for radiology. The payer mix is bad. No one's going to want those contracts. You know, if, if you're busy and you have too much work for the bodies you have, your solution is either higher up or work down, right? If you can't hire because there was a shortage and you can't compete with some other tele jobs or whatever, your, your only possibility for survival is to shed contracts. 
And your contracts that you want to shed are probably the ones that pay the worst, particularly yeah. the ones that are the patients who need you the most, right? The patients who cannot pay, who are, you know, ER-based stuff. So as a result, it's like everyone wants outpatient work, solo insured, whatever, but covering those ERs in, in other places, that's the worst paying job you have. And it used to be you had to have those contracts to get the outpatient work. But now that everything is so tight, you know, I'm not sure that's really true anymore. And so I do think it's a, it's a very confusing and complicated time. And it's part right. of why I write about it so much is that, you know, these are, whenever I pick a topic to write about, it's always like, this is a problem for me or a question for me. I'm going to learn about it, do my due diligence and try to share that because, you know, there's so many blogs out in the world, right? But I'm going to write about something if I think I can add either value or an interesting perspective or a unique uh, assessment or analysis of an issue. Otherwise, I won't write about it. What's the point? And so that's why I write about the stuff because it's like, this is important to so many people that I know personally and work with. But there was crickets, right? There was, you know, PE firm, you know, you know, PR notices, but no actual discussion. Everyone's like, this is terrible. Yeah. But why is it terrible? <laughs> right? Like, why is it actually bad? Is right. it actually bad? Or are people just being curmudgeons, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I have my biases too, but I don't want to just say I'm independent, therefore PE is bad. That's stupid, right? That's not that's not helpful to anybody, right? So ultimately, and and frankly, to a certain extent, it isn't even just PE stuff, right? You know, this is not um that all that different from some of the nonprofit hospitals that employ radiologists directly or even academic centers, right? Any place that's gonna pay you a salary, it's not related to how much money you generate as, a, as an owner, has a chance to pay you as little as possible to milk what you do for more, right? To push you more. And even when I was a resident, like the, the tenants were always complaining, you know, we have to read more and more RVUs, we don't have time to teach you anymore, everything's so busy, right? And it's academics. So it's not like, the, you know, only PE firms are having these problems. It's not, that's not true. It's that, you know, the difference is that in academics, people expect that to a certain extent, and they expect a smaller salary and less vacation because they believe in the mission, right? Whereas these PE-type firms, were they were independent practices. They took people who wanted that. They wanted that mindset of, of ownership and autonomy and control and stole it. <laughs> you know what I mean? They got rid of that part <laughs> and for profit. And so it's just been a very sad story for me to see, you know, I've heard a lot of stories, you know, real stories from real people from multiple different states. And they're all like Mike's story, basically. They're all very similar. And some of it's probably self-fulfilling, right? People say, I don't like this, I'm not be part of it. And by leaving, they destabilize the group, right? It's not necessarily everything is about PE. But I, I do think that you, you have this unavoidable friction when you bring in a third-party owner, especially who's not medical, right? And have that in the relationship with between patients. It's going to create an unavoidable friction. And if it adds value in other ways, let's say that does help you with your IT or your platform or your billing, one can make an argument that it's worth it. But in most cases, those value adds have not seemed to pan out in any way to mitigate the detriments. So do you think that some of these groups are wising up, like the currently independent groups that haven't yet sold the PE because they see kind of the dumpster fire that all of these other groups are, are becoming? Or do you think that we really haven't seen the end of this craze yet? So the number of bots have definitely very, very, very much slowed down. I think it's twofold. I think one thing is that a lot of the, the ripe groups have already sold. Uh, a lot of groups that are remaining are not interested. A lot of them have already merged, especially in big metros, to become big enough that it's hard to buy them, right? There's not as much leverage they can have over you. So it's hard to get, let's say, you know, a big uh, you know, toehold in Dallas, for example. We have three big groups in town. None of them are easy to buy, you know? So it's, I think it's very different. Um, I do think most groups probably don't want, who have not sold already, don't want to sell. And I, and I think that there are, you know, consortiums like there's one called Strategic Radiology, where they, um, it's a kind of a coalition of independent groups that have come together to try to have some of the benefits of a PE umbrella without actually being sold, right? So they try to leverage themselves as a kind of collective for, for stuff like that. So there are, there's arguments for all that kind of stuff. I think a big part of it too, unfortunately, is actually the money's dried up, right? So a lot of the PE buyouts were kind of fueled by the incredible amount of money at play, you know, all these pension funds, everyone needs, you know, places to invest. When interest rates were 0%, they were looking for, for yield here and returns. And so there's a lot of money just being thrown at everything, kind of like dot-com stuff before the, the first bust, right? There's just people, you sure. know, pets.com, let's, let's do it. Like, it's kind of like that. <laughs> and so, but right now, obviously, with after COVID, that's not been the case. So things have really tightened up, the market's down, rates are rising, there's a bit of a credit crunch potentially a recession or a depression coming, you know, so the money is not really there yet. And currently a company like, you know, RP, you know, owes billions with a B, billions of dollars um, in debt due the next few years, right? So in order to raise more money to buy out more groups, they have to have more money. 
And they have to be able to pay off these notes that they already owe. And currently, you know, like RPA, I remember last year in Moody's, they said they they owed um, eight times their, er- their annual earnings, <laughs> their EBITDA. So they owed 8x that in debt. And I think it's actually much higher than that. I think it might be higher than that um, by a significant fraction. But so with that, I think it's much harder to buy out new groups that are not going to be a great sale. Now, I do think we might see a little bit more of this in the future again, only because with the hiring crunch, with the shortage, some groups are really going to struggle. And so I think some groups are probably going to say, you know, this is this the ship is sinking. We should just sell before the whole thing sinks. See if we can get some money out of it. Now, I don't know if they're going to be able to find a buyer, frankly. I'm not sure if people are that desperate to buy a failing practice <laughs> to a certain extent. Although, honestly, with the shortage we have right now, I wouldn't be surprised if you could say, we don't want you for your contracts. We want you for your warm bodies. We, locking yeah. you up for five years is worse <laughs> than to us. We'll have you work somewhere else. We don't even care. You know, we'll put you oh, Kelly only. Oh, it's like only. selling radiologists as indentured servants, basically. Right. So I think there might be a component. <laughs> you know, I think things are so tight in the market. That could actually be a viable push. But I, I do think we might see a few more sales uh, coming up again as, as a group struggle. But I do think largely things slow down in, in part because the money dried up. I guess you kind of already answered this, but like how else, how do you see this playing out in the next five years? So it's interesting. I think you have to be very careful to try to distinguish what you want to happen versus what you think will actually happen. Totally. So I think a lot of people thought, you know, hey, you know, companies like RP are not going to be able to service their debt. They're going to implode. What does that really look like? What does it look like if a big company can't meet its obligations? And the answer is it depends on how everything is structured. But and there's a good chance what will happen is we'll see a lot of groups um, shed contracts. A lot of groups will kind of re- realign themselves. So they'll lose people. They won't be able to get the work done. They will shed contracts that end up smaller than they were before. And so there will be a lot of people who win, a lot of people who lose in terms of hospitals and patient populations and groups. There'll be winners and losers. I think there's a decent chance that there will be some kind of liquidation event for some of these groups where the, where they'll, the entity will sell to another entity, essentially for, you know, for a fraction of the original value, right? So if you, you know, sold your, your practice for 10 bucks a share was the calculated value, maybe it won't be 10 bucks, maybe it'll be like five bucks, right? And you're going to get much less money than you thought you would. But that's how they'll get rid of the debt, is they'll have to restructure it. So I think there's a good chance we'll see something like that in the future. But I don't think, it, I don't think it's necessarily going to end up with, you know, these groups not existing anymore, right? Like, they won't, I don't think PEs disappear because they don't have enough money on hand. The, the entities exist. They're not going to go away. And ultimately, you know, I think we may see some situations where, where groups reform under, after things have, have folded. But, you know, with non-competes, it's all very complicated now. But things are, are confusing because we have a situation where because of non-competes, you oftentimes can't have a job in the same city. But with, with Telly now, you know, you only need a skeleton crew on the ground to, to staff the physical bases, you know. And if the ACR gets its way and we have things like mid-levels can cover contrast, we can do remote contrast coverage, stuff like that, we may really, really rapidly move into a world where most radiology is practiced remotely and kind of we're on site for procedures and whatnot. Obviously, and what that means for the IRDR split, people were talking about IRDR, what's the point of it being together, yada, yada, like, as if somehow that was even a possibility <laughs> to say that all practices nationwide would benefit from the same model is kind of ludicrous, right? Because it depends on yeah. what kind of jobs you have, what kind of practice you have, I mean, if that Mike, makes any sense. I mean, Mike, you read DR in your, in your practice, right? Oh, yeah. Lots. Oh, yeah. Yeah, me too. And I, I think that's a valuable part of my practice. Um, and so I'm, I'm not interested a, in changing that at this point in yeah, my career. Yeah. It's a funny thing about people talk about this all the time as if like, you know, oh, being a line monkey is bad or something, you know, kind of like basic IR is not real IR. Like it's so toxic, right? So it's like, yeah, you have these people who, you know, to them, IR is like, I'm a minimally invasive surgeon. I want to do 3 a.m. tips. That's my life. I don't want to do DR. DR is beneath me, you know, whatever, that kind of stuff. And you have people who like both, who, you know, both have value. And so for a long time, right, IR anchored the contract, but DR brought in the money, right? That was, that was a synergy. And so, you know, we live in a world soon where we have IRs who are employed by the hospital directly, and the DRs are some remote company instead. That could definitely happen. But then how does that work as a job? We have to have enough work in the hospital for a full-time IR, but how do you do the deal with call? You can't have too many, you know, so maybe there's a world where people do more OBL stuff, right? Where people are trying to build practices and clinics and doing more prostates and fibroids, right? Like that could be the future, right? Where people are doing more hospital-employed call stuff with a combination of outpatient and surgical practice. That could be the future for some situations. But clearly not everybody who does IR wants that, right? I think there's definitely still a, a place for typical IR, DR practices to survive. But I do think we're in a situation where it's going to be very confusing. And I think a lot of places are really going to struggle to have contracts, right? Struggle to get coverage. 
And I think we're going to see a lot of hospitals soon where it's like, you know, right now, if you come into a hospital, like a small hospital, you have an MI, right? You get airlifted over to the big hospital for your cath, right? I mean, I don't think they're that far from a world where some hospitals like, oh, you need an abscess drain? We got to send you over for your abscess drain because there's <laughs> no I'm one who's going to come to hospital. Last night, somebody got transferred from an outside hospital for a temporary dialysis catheter. Exactly. For me to yeah. place. Like that is, that's the future is like, there's right, no, like, Quinn, not even the doctors. No way. It's like, like, you know. <laughs> there's no, there's no staff to, at these small rural hospitals to be able to, to do procedures. So it's hard. And, w- w- and what do you do if you're already over understaffed, right? Like what if you, what if you have no bandwidth? Like what's, what's the solution there? And I think the the bottom line is that for so many years, these big hospitals have relied on radiology being a profit center, right? It's a source of revenue. Imaging has always been a source of revenue because they get make money from the machines and technical fees and whatnot. But if you have to start paying radiologists extra, a lot extra to cover that work, suddenly we're in a world where radiology is a cost center, right? Where it's a big source of lost revenue for the hospital. And so I think we're probably going to get to that point in a lot of places now where it's like in order to get you know, things staffed, they're going to have to offer, again, more money, more time, more everything, or just not have it at all. Right? Some places are just not going to have IR services. It's going to all have to go to the big hospital, the big flagship somewhere else far away, or they have to spend a lot of money. But in case they spend a lot of money, then all that money they got for imaging is going to go away. They're going to have to spend it elsewhere to get the imaging read. And so, you know, all these places have been kind of designed to milk imaging for revenues to supply other surface lines. And that, and yeah, that spigot's drying up pretty fast at this rate. Well, Ben, uh, I have just learned so much from you talking for the past hour. I don't. I uh, I was going to ask you a little bit about kind of your relationship with the ABR and and MOC. I don't know if you want to touch on that or if you want to get all get into that. You want to maybe say a couple words about it? <laughs> sure. I mean, so the ABR obviously is you know an organization that is supposed to work on behalf of radiologists to kind of determine that we are all competent to do what we do every day. And so my beef with the ABR is basically twofold. One is that I think the current offerings are a kind of big failure of imagination for what certification could be, right? I don't think, I think most of us agree that multiple choice questions do not really reflect what it is to be a radiologist. You know, taking a screenshot of a few images is not really what we do. And so I think we kind of, I would love to see the ABR do a better job kind of pushing the boundary of real assessment that's actually meaningful for what we do and basically use simulation, right? I think we should have, you know, kind of PACS-based testing where we actually have you know, trainees read real cases and provide, you know, impressions of some kind to see if they can actually practice radiology, right? So what we have right now is we have medical knowledge assessments serve as a proxy for radiology competency. But that is, that is a step removed from what we actually care about, right? Which is, can you be a radiologist, Right. We can test for that. We can test for, can you do radiology? It's called be, do radiology, right? We can have you do that in a safe way. Um, and so that's what I would love to see personally. I think that, you know, my biggest beef is that I don't think what they do is very helpful. Got it. I don't think it's very meaningful. I don't think if you pass the core exam, you're a good radiologist, or you fail it, you're a bad radiologist. I still don't think it's very helpful. And I think that some of the things we do in terms of like the certifying exam and MOC to me seem just so valueless, right? Like what's the benefit of certifying exam that's easier than the core exam, that nobody fails, the core exam is hard, right? What's the point of MOC when it's 52 questions of multiple choice every year? It takes me like an hour to do. And it's like, I appreciate that. I don't want it to be harder. I know we, none of us want it to be harder, but just because we don't want it to be bad doesn't mean it's good or helpful, right? It's a, it's a spurious argument to say that because it's easy, we shouldn't we should complain. It's just not meaningful, right? And I think if things are not meaningful, we shouldn't do them. And everyone's always so scared that you know, we, we complain that like it's gonna get they're gonna make it harder, right? They'll make us they'll fail more of us, right? Like the threat of it being difficult and arduous is the is like the bludgeon for <laughs> silence. You know what I mean? <laughs> but to me, it's like that doesn't make it okay to take people's money and pretend that somehow that has any kind of meaning. It's got no meaning to me personally. And as an organization, I wish they were just more open and more inclusive, right? So if you're if you ever read the the bylaws and, and things like that, which I again have posts about on the site, it's just very, very insular and rigid, right? You know, you have to be a volunteer. If you want to, if you want to be on the board, you have to basically be, you know, promoted by the current board and elected by the current boards. There's no outside stakeholders involved, and it's just like, of course, they're not going to become a more inclusive and welcoming organization for the future of radiology. If everyone who works there has to be like a fanboy, essentially, of the organization <laughs> to have the chance, right? I just feel like that's not the right way for a certification body to exist because I want there to be an ACR rep. I want there to be 
a resident rep, program directors, all these people should have a say in this and they don't have a say. And that makes me kind of just sad, right? So that's the summary of my beef. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that you write about it because it's not a topic I would like venture out to find out about on my own. But whenever I see it on your blog, I like to read about it. So thank you. Keep it up. I love it. Keep it going. Uh, any parting thoughts or suggestions for perhaps younger listeners um, who are looking for jobs or just starting in their practice? So I would say that we've had a kind of somewhat dramatic conversation, right, about the current state of radiology. <laughs> I, I do think that ultimately, like, it's a good time to be a radiologist in a lot of ways. And I do think that when you're looking at a job prospect, I encourage people to take a, a holistic view of this. I think it's very easy to overweigh measurable things like vacation and salary. You know, it's very hard to weigh things like culture and collegiality, which is why people tend not to look at them. But, you know, if you want a long-term job, if you want to actually put down roots somewhere and say, I want to build something and be part of something, then you got to look at the whole picture and not just look at, you know, I'm making this much money, that kind of thing. And I definitely think you should look at the workload. I think some of the residents especially don't understand what it feels like to read a certain number of RVUs and they don't know how much of a beatdown it would be to have a certain expectation every day. I feel like that's very hard for people to get a handle on. And I think if you can figure out what it feels like to know, it'd be very helpful in your job job approach. I think it's really a big part of it. And even when picking your fellowship, it's, I think it's very easy to look at a rotation and say, oh, I like this rotation a lot because it's chill or because the attendings are nice. Those are obviously going to color your perspective. But just because it was fun as a rotation doesn't mean it's going to be fun that way out in practice, right? So you have to kind of think about what it is you like about radiology, what brings you joy, and not get bogged down by the details that are idiosyncratic to where you trained, right? That's my advice to trainees is be holistic, figure out what makes you happy, and, and try to make decisions that you're going to be content with post hoc, right? I think it's very easy to make mistakes early on. A lot of people do change jobs very quickly because they yeah. they valued the wrong things in the process, right? I mean, so Mike, I do Mike think that's part of it. Mike and I are both on our second jobs for, for various reasons. But yeah, I think you learn a lot by very practicing common. in I think different it's 40% of people, environments. 40% of people have oh, more than absolutely. one job. Okay. Yeah, I think I think 40% of people leave their job in the first two years. Oh, wow. It's what, what I remember reading somewhere, yeah. I think. So it's it's extremely common. But that's my advice to, to young trainees and people looking for jobs is, is to do that. And I, and I think ultimately that you know, it's a, it's a very interesting time to be a radiologist. And ultimately, you know, I think when students look at the field and they're, they're worried about, you know, AI and stuff like that, I think, you know, people tend to overestimate some of these changes and how fast they happen. I think we all have time to enjoy our careers. And chances are we're going to enjoy the help before we don't. And if anything, because of the shortage has no real chance of getting better in the short term, we're going to welcome the help when it comes <laughs> to make things work out. I think we're probably going to need to have some structural changes occur in order for us to get the work done and help patients who need help, right? Because there really is a real shortage. But so that's my feeling about that. Well, Ben, um, thank you so much for a really interesting conversation. Mike, thanks for sharing your experiences with PE as well. I, uh, it's always interesting to know a little bit more about your past. And thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks, Allie. Of course, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.